Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. I am your host, Paul Ollinger. My guest this week is Richard Reeves. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author of a new book called Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. Why is this topic relevant to Crazy Money, you might ask? A podcast about money and happiness, work and meaning? Well, I'll tell you why, if you'll just be patient for a second. Because the connection between education, gainful employment, and life satisfaction is massive. And on these metrics, the modern male is not doing so well. Consider some of these data points. Boys are 50% more likely to fail classes in math, reading, and science than girls are. By high school, two-thirds of the students in the top 10% of the class, ranked by GPA, are girls, while about two-thirds of the students in the lowest one-fifth of the class are boys. And it matters. Education matters. One in three American men with only a high school diploma, that's 10 million men, are now out of the labor force. That not, they're, not, they're not unemployed. They are out of the labor force. They're not even counted in the unemployment numbers. And this matters because men without education and jobs do less well as husbands and fathers and thus perpetuate the cycle for their children. Yes, especially for their sons. Perhaps worst of all, men make up 75% of those who die by deaths of despair. That is suicide or acute substance abuse. The net of it is when you lose hope in the future, you become increasingly volatile in the present. To quote U2's Bono in his song, God Part Two from Rattle and Hum, which I know you loved when it came out back in 1986 or so, you glorify the past when the future dries up. And folks, we've seen a lot of glorifying of the past in America over the last few years. You've probably read Richard's writing, the New York Times, the Guardian, the Atlantic, or the Wall Street Journal. His previous book, Dream Hoarders, which I highly recommend, and which he came on the show three years ago. Yes, July of 2019. He came on the show to discuss that book. It was named a book of the year by The Economist back then. I'm delighted to have him back on the show. Please enjoy this conversation with Richard Reeves. Richard Reeves, welcome back to Crazy Money. Thank you for having me back. Richard, the new book is called Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It, which raises the obvious question, what do you have against women, Richard? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you need to get my wife on the show, I think, to, uh, to ask her <laughs> about that. I did, I did a thing at uh, the American Enterprise Institute, and a, a friend of mine, Scott Winship, introduced it by saying, I've known Richard a long time, and I didn't know how much he hated women. Uh, and that's, of course, the sort of question at the back of everyone's mind, which is, well, obviously, if you care about boys and men, that must mean you hate women and girls, uh, right, and right. so you have to. That's the choice, right? You've got to. You've got, you have to choose. Uh, you can't. You it, can't care about both. You can't. You can't think two thoughts at once. I'm fine. I'm. I'm yeah. glad to see finally men are getting a break in this country, Richard. Thank God you're you're performing this important service. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the right question. And again, it's back to this ability to like think two thoughts at once is difficult. I tell you what I'll do is I'll report on the conversations I'm having with people that make me happiest, which are not you know ones like this which are high you know very interesting and into the book and stuff it's the people who said yeah i had a great conversation with my girlfriend or wife or sister or, uh, about this and she started off like super skeptical she was like are you kidding me and then we listened to the book together or we talked about it or whatever and we had a really good conversation there is literally no piece of feedback i could get that would make me happier than that Right. So so you're opening the eyes of of the world to an issue that's going on. What what is it that boys and men are struggling with these days? Well, the the first point to make is that it's not all boys and men. The ones I'm most worried about are working class men and black boys and men especially. It's not the elite. The elite men by and large 
are managing to adapt to the new world pretty well, uh, the new world, especially of gender equality. Equality is easier for the affluent, essentially. And, and men at the top are the only mm. ones that have seen a pay rise uh, in recent years, for example. But for, for a lot of men, in many cases, the majority on some of these fronts, there's real problems in education. So there's a bigger gender inequality in the US in education today than there was 50 years ago. It's just the other way around. And so whereas 50 years ago, men were 13 percentage points more likely to get a college degree. Today, women are 15 percentage points more likely than men to get a college degree. So there's been a complete reversal of the gender inequality. And you might say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, you got to, I thought we thought there was something wrong with it when there was, you know, not quite such a big gap the other way. And we did a lot about it quite rightly. So we have to have a really interesting conversation. Well, why wouldn't we care if it ran the other way? Do we care about gender inequality? Yes or no. Or do we only care about gender inequalities that run in one direction? And then in the labor market, especially working class men have, have really been hit by a one-two punch of free trade and automation such that among men with high school degree, 10 million are out of work. That's one in three. And most American men today earn less than most American men did in 1979. And I do think that's a data point that's worth pausing on, right? When you're in a situation where, as a group, most American men are worse off economically than most were 40 years ago, that's a pretty striking economic fact. Uh, of course, women's wages have risen across the board from a lower base. And one of the consequences of all of those things is just radically reshape family life in some ways much for the better, because it's much more based on women's economic independence. But that has left a lot of fathers either benched or adrift or struggling to figure out what it means to be a father in this new world. And the result is that one in five fathers are essentially absent from their children's lives, or just from their homes, but from their lives, which is the thing I'm most worried about. Your, your previous book, Dream Hoarders, was all about the sort of the momentum that the upper middle class has that perpetuates itself. It seems like a lot of those same factors are at work here, that, that the affluent are going to be better off. They're going to make the decisions to stay married and to, be, and to parent their children because they can, because it's easier for those of us who, like you and I, um, have good have have good educations, and we've we've been able to achieve economic autonomy, and we can do basically the work that we choose to do. But that's not the case, and we can raise our children mm -hmm. so that they can do the work that they choose to do. But that's not the case for the average or median person, median male in the country. Yeah, that's right. So the economic story there is clear is that we are forming households with high earning women, right? So you have high earning men and high earning women forming households, I would argue now largely for the purposes of co-parenting. I think the joint middle, venture, uh, JV joint, parenting, I like yeah, that. That's concept. right. That's basically what the, I think that upper middle class marriage is basically a joint venture for raising kids together. And and one little data you point. Old, you old romantic. I you, know. Richard. Well, that's what I said to my wife. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I've drawn up the papers. Shall we partner? <laughs> well, but it's interesting to me that like only one in five Americans now think that marriage is important to a fulfilling life. And it's also interesting to me that the most economically powerful women in the history of the world, i.e. college-educated American women, I'm just going to state that as a fact. I think that's a basic, a perfectly defensible statement that hard to find a more economically independent group of women in the history of the world are most likely to be getting married and staying married, which is mm. exactly the opposite of what the leaders of the women's movement expected. The whole point of the, of the post-war women's movement was so that you didn't have to get married. <laughs> you know, you read Gloria Steinem's uh, statements, etc. It was just marriage is a site of oppression. Marriage is where women get, you know, it's the bondage of women into marriage. Marriage was seen as absolutely the enemy of women. And yet 
the most educated and the most liberal women in many cases are flocking to get married. And the only answer I've been able to come up with is it makes economic sense to combine these household resources and to raise kids together. And the last thing I'll say is that for men at the top of the distribution, actually it's easier to cope with this greater gender equality because they still have professional status. They still have other forms of status. They're not so reliant on the traditional breadwinner status because they're still making podcasts. They're still writing books. They're still whatever. They generally haven't abandoned the labor market and gone into the home most of them have retained their professional identities and that makes it easier for them to cope with the recalibration of the relationship with women. So it's all about optionality because even you see the most educated women and the ones from the highest earning households are the ones most likely to take time off to raise their kids, right? That's also true. But I think at this point, you have to say that's a choice. It's a choice that's facilitated by the, the economic situation that they're in. And so the good data points there are the fact that you know, 15 years after graduating with a Harvard MBA, most women with a Harvard MBA are either working part time or not working because they've got kids at home. They have a Harvard MBA. It's really right. hard to argue that they've been brainwashed into thinking that they have to be a stay at home wife and mother at that point. You have to believe that's, a, <laughs> that's a, an option. That they're executed. And by the way, the more money that their partner earns, the more likely they are to take that option. So it's very clear to me that that's an option set. That's not sexism. That is that is aggregated individual choices to optimize whatever utility they're creating in that household, right? That's that's my view. I still find you'll still find people that say, well, you know, even there, those women, they've been taught by society that they should stay home, etc. And I gotta tell you, if it's a six month old or maybe up to a one year old, that doesn't seem to be true. Uh, I think it's really a choice. And the other point, data point I'll give you is a uh, paper by Corinne Lowe uh, called Marriage as Collateral. And what it finds is that in states where wealth gets divided equally between um, husband and wife in the event of divorce, mums stay at home for longer, especially if they're highly educated. And so this idea that actually one of the things that women will stop a mum from staying at home is the fear that she's going to lose out on the wealth creation that's going on. Uh, if they get divorced. And so it's super interesting, by comparison the states, she's able to show that actually, if you re basically, if you offer the reassurance to women that they're not going to lose out in terms of their share of what's being generated, they stay home more. Again, that to me, that's quite strong evidence that we've got to say that for young children, this is a choice on the part of women and a choice, by the way, that many working class women and especially black women would love to have available to them, but they don't. They're working three jobs. They don't have yeah, time to. They're trying to survive. Thus perpetuating the same problems that, that we're dealing with already. Correct. Yeah. Just, you know, the, the, the cycle turns. Uh, the only reason middle class families have seen any increase in pay is because of the rising earnings and employment of women. Most uh, in most black families, a mother is the main already the, the main or sole breadwinner. And so this is a dramatic change in economic circumstances. But but it, it allows me to say that actually a world of struggling men is unlikely to be one of flourishing women. OK, I, I want to come back to the black family because that is a uniquely challenging um, um, set of circumstances. Right. But I want to talk first about the mixed messages that you say the world sends to boys and men these days. What is what, mm -hmm. what, what is what is a guy supposed to be about in 2022? Yeah, well, most guys don't have a great answer to that question, which is, I think, an important place to start. Peggy Orenstein has a wonderful book called Boys and Sex, and she asked hundreds of young men, what's good about being male? And almost none of them could answer. And she quotes one I can as, pee out. I can pee outside. That's, <laughs> yes, that's... none of them thought of that. That's a great answer. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. 
<laughs> they didn't come up with that. Um, but a lot of them said, you know, it's interesting. You hear a lot about what's wrong with guys and you mm. hear a lot about what not to do. And the experience that my sons had going through but of social and emotional education or whatever at school, and they had one which was about dating and sex and so on. And I asked them, like, what was it about? And I said, they said it was a long list of things not to do or say. Right. Uh, it was entirely negatively framed. It was entirely about don't do this, don't say that, don't do that. Exactly. It was all about don'ts, not do's. And so I do think there's this problem where if we don't offer some more positive messaging around masculinity, we're in trouble. We've torn up the old script for masculinity, largely for good reason, because it was based on breadwinner, provider, protector, <laughs> all that stuff, right? But what's replaced it? We have replaced the feminine script with one which is about empowerment and independence. But what's the new one for men? Um, and right now, it's, it's difficult even to have that conversation without falling into the trap that we started with, which is like, all oh, right, okay, you want to talk about masculinity, you must be a men's rights activist, uh, tune you out. Well, what do you think it means to be a good man? I think it means expanding the idea of the provider. So I just do th think the idea that fathers really matter to their children is incredibly important. I, I think the, the, the fact that traditional marriage has been weakened for very good reasons by the rise of women's economic independence doesn't mean that fathers don't matter as much as they always have. In fact, in some ways, fathers matter even more for lower income families. So if a father isn't a breadwinner, good chance the the family is poorer, his relationship with the kids is even more important then because kids raised in poor families and especially boys raised in poor families benefit even more from active father involvement. And fathers are a bit different to mothers. We just talked about the very early years where there does seem, if anything, to be something of a preference on the part of women to be with kids in the very early years. But it looks as if dads actually really come into their own later on, like as kids get into their teens and through, through adolescence. As if anything, it looks like dads might have a competitive advantage during those years. Not that they don't have a role all the way through, but that actually they kick in in teenage years. But it means I'm coming into my time now. My kids are yeah. 11 and 13. So there you go. I'm finally going to get my, I'm going to get my <laughs> shot. <laughs> you are. But the problem is, and here, here I think the feminists are right. The problem quite very often is that the roles between mothers and fathers get calcified in the early years and they somehow predict what happens later. But my experience of this is like with the most educated liberal feminist women I know, they weren't generally pissed at their husbands for not doing as much of the childcare when the kid was three months old or six months old and they were still breastfeeding. They wanted him to be doing his share, whether that was mm. economically or around the house or whatever. What they're pissed about is that 10 years later, 12 years later, he still has no idea who the doctor is or where the kids are going for their play dates or whatever. She's pissed <laughs> about the fact that like this early years difference is predictive of the next 20 years. You know, you're only 11, 13 right. years through. I'm 26 years into this journey. And I got to tell you, yeah. it takes quarter of a century at least to raise kids. So we can definitely do our share over the time period. And maybe men can do more in those adolescent years. So the, the idea I've got is that, you know, even if mums do tots, then dads should do teens and roughly yeah. in roughly equal measure. So I got to tell you this uh, anecdote. One uh, a year or two ago, my wife calls me one winter day and says, "There's a snow warning, and here in Atlanta, you know, if there's any flurries, they shut the entire school down." She, so she goes, "Go pick Izzy up at school if you can." And so I went over there, and I was, the, I think, I was the first parent in the vestibule, and then a, and then probably four or five moms come in, and they're we're sitting there kind of like talking to the receptionist, and then another dad walks in, and she and he goes, "I'm here for Sally Ann or whatever the name was." And the receptionist says to the dad, what's her teacher's name? 
And in front of in front of all these other moms, the guy just goes, uh, uh, he had no idea. And I was like, thank God that wasn't me. I, he didn't know the I, well, he probably he probably also froze. And look we're, we're, look, we're all in a transition period. And I actually, I can't remember who it was that said this. It might have been uh, Steinem or Mead or someone, but someone said, uh, that uh, mothers know the names of their children's you know, best friends and worst enemies. They know their greatest hopes and their darkest fears. And fathers are vaguely aware that there are smaller people in the house. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, that is kind of a true as an old stereotype. <laughs> it's the kind of conversations that my my wife has with the kids. It's like, I'm, I'm always very utilitarian. What'd you have for lunch today? And they'll be like, bread. I'm like, you had bread? Bread was what you had for lunch. Hmm. Uh, glad we paid for that meal service. But anyway, moms have better conversations with, uh, my, my wife has better conversations. Well, hang on. Are your kids boys or girls or both? B- boy and a girl. Yeah. Well, I think it depends. You see, that's not true. So I had this uh, interesting uh, conversation with my wife about communication styles. It is actually a great example of some of the sex differences. So my boys would come home from school and my, and my, if my wife was the one who was at home, she'd sit them down, she'd give them something to eat because probably if they'd had anything, they'd had bread for lunch and so she'd give them something with protein right. in it right? and they'd sit there and she'd <laughs> and she'd sit opposite them at, at their breakfast bar she'd sit directly facing them and she'd say how was your mm-hmm. day and they go fine what did what did you do i don't know how was math don't know and she gets really frustrated and then a few hours later i'd be video gaming with them or driving them to soccer or something like that and they'd just say hey this really weird thing happened at school today and i go oh, what was that while we're shooting or always playing and i'd say this girl said this really weird thing to me or whatever it was i tried to explain to my wife that it's quite well known in psychology that on average guys do better shoulder to shoulder mm. not face to face it's a more of a feminine feminine communication style is go face to face right sit directly in the eye whereas guys do better shoulders that's why we that's why we fish that's why we play golf um that's why we go to you know sports matches so that we can be doing something else while actually we're while we're actually talking and that was really my experience with the boys and that was something that my wife actually really learned from and but that means that the present that your presence there on an ongoing basis is that much more important because you can't schedule meaningful interactions i I mean you just have to be there when the kid opens up and and wants to share that's about relation that's why i find the debate about present absent fathers a, a bit outdated because much more important is quality of the relationship with the kid time time spent with them uh, it's relational it's based on the relationship not the residence now it's obviously easier to have that kind of time with them if you're co-resident with the mother right it just makes it easier i think it's crazy to deny that but on the other hand it's also clear to me that the relationship even if it's harder to sustain even when you're not living together is much more important that's why i'm really focused on fatherhood rather than I am on marriage. And I did actually find one interesting study which looked at the outcomes for kids whose father lived in the same home, but they had a very distant relationship with him, very, very weak, distant relationship, versus kids whose fathers didn't live in the same home as the mother, but they spent a lot of time with the father and had a very good relationship with him. And the latter group did much better. And so the lesson for me there is, like, let's, let's not confuse the means and the ends here. The end is the relationship. And one means to that is co-residence. But if we lose sight of the fact that it's the relationship that matters, the danger is if the relationship between the parents dissolves, the father gets benched. And that's the problem we face right now. The the fatherlessness is the result of the lack of co-residence. And when 40% of kids are born outside marriage, that's an insane way to structure parenting. You cite some statistics that were 
eye-opening and disturbing. Not and, and one of the, the uh, is economic based. Non-high school grads, forty percent of dads live apart from their children. And then you say also that within six years of separation, uh, one in three kids never sees their father again. Never. Yeah. yeah. And then another third only sees him one time a month. Yeah. That's just that's just scary as all hell. Yeah. Those those the latter numbers especially, I mean, I I'll be honest, they really they really shock me. Those numbers you have to sort of go back, triple check, have someone else double check, check again, have someone <laughs> else they really because it because they are so depressing. But they actually speak to exactly this problem we just talked about, which is we haven't managed to restructure fatherhood and parenting in such a way that if if the mother and father aren't co resident, the they don't continue to co parent. The goal here has to be to facilitate and support co-parenting, even in the absence of co-residence. So what's really interesting about this is that that's a big problem for unmarried men. So most of those numbers you talked about, because marriage rates are much lower among less educated men. So a lot of those, the lot, most of the people you just talked about, they weren't married. Whereas divorcing couples, they have a really good, we have a good system for that. And I was really encouraged to see there are very few, almost no sole custody awards now in divorce courts. And after divorce now, fathers are getting a third of the time with, with their kids, according to the court order. Now, that's not 50%, but it's way more than it used to be. And a third of the time is a good chunk of time. But for unmarried fathers who don't have the divorce system to help them out, if they don't end up staying with the mum and they don't have a good legal system to support them, both society and law is kind of bench, is kind of saying, yeah, yeah, you're done. Sorry, off you go. Now, it doesn't mean they shouldn't take responsibility. A big part of my message is, look, fathers, like positive, responsible fatherhood to me is actually the social institution that we most need to build up to keep connecting those dads to the kids. It's actually unconscionable that we should have the numbers you just cited. Jordan Peterson talks a lot about the roles that men should play in the world. What does he get right? What does he get wrong? Well, he does get the, the bit right about, you know, get your act together. Right? Have, have agency, have autonomy. And, and it's easy to trivialize this stuff about, you know, make the bed, stand up straight and so on. And, and I think all of my sons, at least two of them, read his 12 rules for life. And I got to tell you, the chapter about make your own bed, that's the one I really wanted to sink in. It turns out, no, they still didn't make their bed. <laughs> so they were like the worst Peterson acolytes ever. Um, but some of that I think is true. Get your act together. Um, but I think what he gets wrong is he doesn't, he does a couple of things wrong. One is he doesn't, I think for all his compassion for the plight of men, he doesn't really see these structural difficulties that they're having. He doesn't understand how the education system needs reforming. He doesn't understand that the labor market's changed. It is very individualistic. He's a psychologist. So understandably, he's very, very much about you as an individual. Whereas maybe because I'm a policy wonk, I'm thinking, why is the education system failing boys? He's more about why are boys failing? I'm more about why are we failing boys? And um, the other thing is that in my assessment, he overstates the biological differences between men and women to justify mm. very sharp divisions of labor, say around parenting, marriage, but also in, in the labor market. You know, he's, he's close to saying, of course, we don't have any women engineers. Their brains don't work that way. And that my view is that you're not going to get 50 percent of engineers are women because of the differences between men and women. But the distributions overlap quite a lot. Uh, you should get at least a 25, 30 so, you know, whereas the left deny biology altogether, people like Peterson overweight biology, in my view, and make it a bit too determinative. So we, we've talked about the, the, the discrepancy in um, educational achievement right now. We've talked about the decline in real income. What are the consequences of all this? You talked about deaths of despair. What is mm. what is what is what does adulthood look like for the non-affluent man in America? Well, for a lot of them, it looks pretty grim. 
And the deaths of despair you just refer to are a really good symptom of that. That that includes deaths from suicide, drug overdose, or alcohol-related illnesses. And men are at least three times higher risk for a death of despair why, than Why women. is Is it just because we're uptight and always our brains are going too much? It can't be that different. What's, what's, what is it about our biology? Well, I mean, su- suicide, uh, and it's hard sometimes to tell, you know, drug, drug overdoses you know, and st- suicide, they overlap a lot. Um, there's this kind of sense of just checking out one way or the other. I mean, of course, the ultimate checking out is tragically in, in suicide. But but even the other things we're talking about, like opioids, uh, men account for 70% of opioid deaths. In Washington state, there are new numbers now. It's three quarters uh, of op- opioid deaths are from men. And those are also drugs of retreat. They're not drugs you take to go out partying. You know, you're just not MDMA to stay up all night. It's not cocaine to be more interesting at a dinner yeah. party. It's it's a drug of retreat. And in fact, one of the reasons the deaths are so high is because the men, they are mostly men, are alone. And so uh-huh. there's, no, there's no one to resuscitate them, whereas with other drugs, there's usually someone uh, else around. And I, I think it speaks to this sense of redundancy. We just talked about fathers uh, and how actually many of them just feel like they don't matter as fathers anymore. Maybe they're struggling in the labor market. Maybe they don't have a job. What's their role? And I, I was very struck by a study by Fiona Shand and others, which I quote in the book, of suicide among men. And they asked, they looked at the words that men had used to describe themselves before their suicide or suicide attempt. And the two most commonly used words to describe themselves by those suicidal men were useless and worthless. Mm. And it seems to me quite obvious if you create a situation where people thought that society maybe their family, community doesn't have any use for them, they don't have any worth, then I think it's not surprising that so many of them will end their lives in one way or another, tragically. Whereas for women, once they become mothers especially, there's a very strong sense that they, they matter, if nothing else, they matter to their kids. They're also doing better in the labor market, so there's, kind of, there's more employment opportunity, etc. And so there's just, uh, it turns out, and this is, I think, a, an important truth, although it's an unpopular one in some ways, is that males are a bit more fragile. Their role in society is more fragile. It's more socially constructed. It's easier for it to collapse under certain conditions. And for working class men especially, those conditions have really been against them for a few decades now. And we've, we're training boys to do one kind of work, or, or maybe we should be expanding, you suggest, the, the kinds of work that we encourage boys and men to think about as they, as they grow into adults. Yeah, I, I think I actually have two thoughts here, which in some ways are, con- are seem contradictory, but I hope they don't they don't they don't end up being contradictory. One is that there are still quite a lot of jobs that require vocational technical skills, more like hands on kinds of skills, which are predominantly done by men, and I think will continue to be done mostly by men, if not quite as predominantly. And so I do think we need massive investments in vocational training technical mm. high schools, apprenticeships, all of which massively favor men overall into those jobs, into those sorts of jobs. So we do need that. And then the other half of it is the is the bit where maybe we'll come to. But I'd start by saying, I don't want to be misinterpreted as saying there aren't still lots of these vocational jobs, HVAC engineers, et cetera. But our high school education system does a terrible job of promoting and encouraging uh, those sorts of skills. And so one of my proposals is to just is to double the number of technical high schools. Because it's either college or nothing, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. And that it turns out that the college or nothing message is bad for, I mean, we talked about this before when we talked about my last book, but it's bad for class reasons, 
because mm -hmm. obviously upper middle class parents get that and they get their kids ready for college and clean up in the college going game. It's also bad for <laughs> it's really bad for gender reasons because actually everything else equal, college doesn't work as well for men as it does for women. Right. And so you need alternatives for working class kids and especially for men in the form of high quality vocational education. And so I think there are all kinds of reasons to worry about the, the horrible way that the US treats vocational training. Um, uh, and one of them is gender. And to give a really sharp example, there's a, a live discussion now about canceling college debt, which has been described as a gender justice issue because two thirds of college debt is held by women because women go to college much more than men. And let's leave aside an argument about the rights and wrongs of that policy. It's also, it's striking, meanwhile, that the apprenticeship bill, which for one and a half billion dollars, which is 0.1% of the cost of cancelling student debt, I think, you could create a million more apprenticeships, most of which would go to men. Um, but yeah. it has been in the Senate, stalled in the Senate for a year. And there's all kinds of reasons for it. But one is that actually it's seen as a problem that most apprenticeships go to men. Whereas I don't see it as a problem anymore. I see that as a feature because, because the mainstream education system is not doing a great job by our boys and men. So let's have more apprenticeships and technical high schools. And then there is this whole other side, which is, yes, we also need to help men get into the professions that are currently coded as female, like health education and so on. You, uh, I th you did mention Meet the Fockers in this book, right? I didn't imagine mm -hmm. that. Mm. <laughs> I don't think about. any, I don't think any, I don't think any Brookings press book is complete without a reference to Meet the Fockers, honestly. <laughs> uh, I try and slip every book. <laughs> yeah, because the, like, when was, when was the last time you heard someone say female lawyer or female doctor? I hope it's been a while. My daughter is watching She-Hulk Attorney at Law, oh. which is a new a new show mm. on, uh, it's a reboot of the Hulk mm -hmm. franchise. Mm -hmm. Yes. So. I'm aware of it and I probably will watch it. I'm not ashamed to say. But uh, the, the truth, of course, is that 50% of lawyers now are women. Um, every law review at the top law firms uh, last year was edited by a woman. Um, it's just like, a, that was a profession that was just like another good example. I think I have this in there. I borrowed this from Claudia Golden. When Perry Mason was originally aired, I think fewer than 5% of undergraduates in law, of, of law students were female. When wow. the reboot came out, which is excellent. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen the rebooted Perry Mason? I don't think I have. No, oh, it's very good. Yeah. And it has one of my favorite Welsh actors in it, but, um, it's, uh, it's, it's 50%. And so it's like it, yeah. the, the world. The world where law was a male profession has gone. Meanwhile, this is where Meet the Fockers comes in. The idea of a male nurse, of course, you, I mean, <laughs> right. everyone says male nurse, right? Because it's still only one in 10 nurses are men. It's barely gone up. And right. there are other professions where you've seen a declining share of men in those professions, in what I call these heel jobs, health, education, administration, literacy. And some mm -hmm. of the changes are actually quite, I mean, honestly, psychology is one that's just shocked me. That were just the you know the last few decades gone from parity to you know a female profession in just you know very very short period of time. What are the numbers in psychology? So in 1980, actually slightly more than half of psychologists were male. So it was pretty close to parity um, in 1980. It's uh, in the last decade the share of men has dropped from 39 percent to 29 percent, and among psychologists under the age of 30, only five percent are male. And how about teachers? Because those numbers are stark as well. Yeah. So back to 1980, 
particularly in element, particularly in elementary and middle school, it was forty percent of teachers in elementary and middle were male. Now it's down to twenty percent, so it's halved. We've halved the number of male teachers in elementary and middle. The, the drop has been a bit less sharp in high school, but uh, but the overall trend has been down. So they're now only twenty four percent of K twelve teachers are men. It was thirty three percent. Now, why does that matter? It matters because it matters for three reasons. One is because there actually is there are jobs in those spaces, and so if you have <laughs> right. men, right? Men, men want right, men. Yeah. Men need jobs. Here are jobs. The problem okay. is the problem is actually the credentials that are required. So that's a different conversation. But like, here are some jobs, guys. It also matters because some of those professions, nursing is a great case in point, but teaching also. There are labor shortages, and it's a bad idea to try and solve labor shortages with only half the workforce. But the third and I think most compelling reason is because the evidence is quite strong that in schools, the boys do better if they have some male teachers, and especially in subjects like English. And English is a really great example because, and it doesn't affect girls' performance in English. And the girls in the typical school district now, girls are almost a grade level ahead in English, and they've caught up in math. So there's pretty good evidence that having a female teacher helps girls in STEM subjects, maybe because it goes against the grain a bit, either stereotypically or to some extent naturally. There's equally good evidence, in my view, that having male teachers really helps in English. I know it helped me. I mean, I had a male English teacher in high school, and he taught us uh, metaphysical poetry, Andrew Marvell, um, John Donne, to a coy mistress. And he'd have us like, really, you, know, you, you try teaching a bunch of 16-year-old working-class boys to love John Donne, uh, John Donne's mm. love poetry. It really helped that Mr. Wyatt was A, a guy, and B, a Korean War veteran. And he would be moved to tears by some of these poems. And so there's no question that it helped me see literacy in English as something that was okay for guys to like and be into. But the social science supports that N of one too. And yet we have, we have fewer and fewer male teachers. And here's the kicker. The subject they're least likely to teach is English. So in the very subject where we could most benefit from male teachers is where we have the fewest. So I'm all for scholarships for men to teach English in our high schools, just for men. Just as we have female scholarships to teach STEM or go on to do STEM, like we need male-only subsidies and male-only scholarships if we're going to get more men into these professions. Let's talk about the unique dynamics of the black family in America. Black women are doing better. Black men are, are not. What's, what's happening? Where intersectionality <laughs> comes into play with gender and race, it's uniquely important in a black family. Yeah, hugely important. And it just in terms of understanding the complexity, like we've, we've talked about the growing class gap, but also this race gap. And, and, a, and a data point here just on the, uh, on the specifics of the labor market is that white women have seen this really rapid earnings growth. Um, black women from a much lower base, not quite as big a growth, and black men almost none. And so whereas in 1979, black men earned a bit more than white women, today, white women earn much more than black men. For every dollar earned by a white woman, a black man earns 84 cents, which is about the same as the gender pay gap that you hear so much about, right? And so when you hear someone say, oh, what about the gender pay gap? Always think, yeah, what about race? Also, what about class? Um, black men have basically stagnant, their wages have basically barely grown uh, in the last few decades. Educationally, always, basically always, like at the bottom of whichever table you look at, Black boys and black men, the education system systematically failing. Black families generally, but black boys in particular. And so all of these gaps we've talked about, including in education, much wider um, for blacks. So for every two, uh, every two college degrees going to black women, there's only one going to black men. 
um, black women, as I said, primary breadwinners, etc. And so there's a very different economic, and it has been for a long time, a very different economic dynamic going on in black families. And what that means is that actually some of the some of the broader issues that I think broader society is dealing with now, which is like a world where female women are the main breadwinner as the norm, are ones that have been true in the black community for a very long time. And interestingly, black fathers are more involved with their kids' lives if they're not in the house than other fathers of other races. And I think that's because so many black fathers are not in the same home because the, because it's now the norm to not have marriage as the primary institution. It means that black fathers are kind of reinventing fatherhood somewhat in along the lines that I think we all need to reinvent fatherhood, which is not to make it synonymous with co-residence with the mother. And I'm not suggesting that that's a that there are good reasons behind that adaptation because the black family has been under such stress from from racism for so long but it does actually give us some reasons to hope that there are different ways to be a father um and that black men are to some extent moving that uh, debate forward but but i will tell you that the the overall picture is of black families under massive stress and black women in particular basically having to carry a huge burden in part because of the way in which our education system, criminal justice system, and labor market is spectacularly failing black men. One of the issues you raise is that boys develop slow, more slowly than girls do, mm. you know, and you, and you recommend, you, you recommend a delay in start for school. Now, when my son was in preschool, he's a late birthday or an early birthday hmm. for his year. So we held him back for an extra year of preschool. Hmm. And I thought, now in general, I don't love this trend in America, but I want to do what's best for my son. But basically what you're saying is that this trend is actually a good trend if if you can afford it, if you can swing it to start your 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 boy later for in school. I that was the most poorly worded question ever, no, I but get it. it's it's good to start boys in, in the edge. Boys, boys take longer to develop and, and they should get to school later. Is that yeah, correct? That's right. Uh, so <laughs> the, <laughs> the average on average, like could just assume everything's on average. Um, yes. And, and actually, in particular, I draw attention to the fact that the developmental gap between boys and girls is biggest in adolescence. Mm -hmm. uh it's there's it's there in preschool for sure but the, a lot of the debate is like is he ready to start school but um a, another question is what about 10 years later i'm more worried about whether he's ready to start high school than whether he's ready to start kindergarten because there's mm -hmm. a lot of evidence that actually boys are just not as ready and ninth grade by the way is where a lot of boys really crater certainly i was experienced with like actually most of my kids but like one of them getting i mean, never i never forget trying to explain to him what the a and gpa stood for as he tried to figure out why his GPA wouldn't, was still so low when he got a 1.7 in his freshman year of high school. And I said, well, look, it's an average. Like, here's how averages work, right? Uh, it's like, so if you get 1.7. it's a math seven, issue. Like, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> math was not his strongest subject, as this would suggest. He knows all about John Donne. But... <laughs> yeah, he's a beautiful writer. Um, but yeah, once he figured out, I said, oh, yeah. So I said, I said like, you know how I was telling you that it was not a good idea to just create a ninth grade um this is it because he gets to junior year and goes wait why is my gpa so low i was like because you crashed anyway um and so i actually think that by default it would be good to have boys starting school a year later because girls are developmentally about a year ahead in adolescence particularly in these organizational skills it's more the prefrontal cortex bit of the brain develops earlier and that's the bit that has you turn your chemistry homework in right so the prefrontal cortex 
gets you to chemistry class, remembers there's homework, takes the homework home, does the homework, turns the homework in on time, right? That's the bit of the CEO of your brain. And girls just have it earlier uh, and stronger than boys do. And so if you have an education system that rewards you turning in your chemistry homework on time, then it's no surprise that girls account for two thirds of the highest GPA scorers in high schools now. So let's recognize that developmental gap and just default start boys and school a year later. The irony is actually that people like you are the ones who are doing it most. Um, and probably, and our sons, people like us, are the ones who will least benefit from it because they would have all the other mm. advantages anyway. It's actually poorer right. boys who would benefit more. So if we could provide childcare right. an extra year of pre-K, I think that would benefit the poorer boys even more than it would the more affluent boys. What other solutions do you propose to help address the issue with boys and men? A massive recruitment drive of male teachers. We've already talked a bit about that, but you know, scholarship subsidies. I, I find the fact that the teaching profession is just becoming more female dominated by the year without comment to be frankly shocking and slightly unconscionable. Uh, and so I just think we need concerted, intentional public policy efforts to get more men into teaching, get more boys thinking about teaching into our classrooms. I would say the same about subsidies to get men into these broader heel professions, health, education, et cetera, just as we do for women into STEM. We've got to help more men getting to those professions. And in terms of fatherhood, I would I'd very strongly advocate for paid leave policies that treat men and mothers and fathers equally and give equal paid leave to fathers as to mothers. What level you set that at is, is a different question. Of course, the US has no federal paid leave right now, but a number of states do. In a fit of wild utopianism, I called for six months for each parent, for each child, which right now only Finland gets close to in the world. So I'm well aware that in the current US, that seems crazy. But on the other hand, it is extraordinary to me how we've transformed family life and barely transformed the workplace. The failure to kind of reform our labor market institutions to fit with the new world of work is extraordinary. And so whilst we're very often promised family-friendly employment, actually what we end up producing is employment-friendly families. We bend our kids' mm. schedules, our own lives, breakfast clubs, after-school clubs, et cetera, to fit with an unreformed view of the labor market. And that's just really bad for our kids. The point of the women's movement wasn't for women to work the same way men had always worked. It was for everybody to work differently. And paid leave would help with that. And as we've alluded to earlier, the treatment of unmarried fathers in the US legal system is a big problem as far as I'm concerned. And so reforming child support, making sure that unmarried fathers are treated with more respect and more similarly to married fathers would go a long way to send a signal that dads matter, period. What about that 40-year-old who feels useless? Well, if he has kids, and of course not all of them do, he's not useless. By definition, if you are a father, you are incredibly useful and you're incredibly needed. I think it's a human universal that we all need to feel needed. If you have kids, you're needed. But maybe if you, even if you don't have, a, have your own kids, maybe you have nephews, maybe, you have, maybe there are boys in your life, in your extended family, who can help from you. And if not in your own family, in your community. It's really striking to me how we just don't see that many men stepping into these new roles and getting status from them in the community, in churches, in scout groups, in community groups, boys and girls clubs, whatever it is. But the main, the main message I would say is to a 40-year-old man is there are boys out there, either your own or in your family or in your community, who need you. There is this, this real fatherlessness, this male-lessness in many of our communities. And I think that you have a huge opportunity, but also a responsibility as a man in modern society to help fill that gap and be the, and help help these boys to recognize what it means to become a man 
That's a great place to leave it. Richard Reeves, the book is called A Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. I read it. It's highly thought-provoking, and I highly recommend it. Richard, where can our listeners find out more about you? Well, thank you for having me on. I love our conversations. Uh, Richard V. Reeves. The V is important. That's my website address, richardvreeves.com. <laughs> it's a Welsh name, Vaughan, for those who care to know what it is. Uh, I have a new Substack called Of Boys and Men, uh, and I'm, I'm on Twitter at Richard V. Reeves. We'll put links to that in the show notes. Great to talk to you again. Thanks you for too. doing it. Thanks for having me on. Hey, everybody. If you like what we're up to here at Crazy Money, do us and yourself a favor by following the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribing to our YouTube channel. Also, click the link in the show notes to subscribe to my new Substack, where you'll get bi-weekly thoughts on the role of money in our world and in our lives directly to your email inbox. Thanks for sticking around. We'll see you next week.